Hello and welcome to today's episode of Dating a Blink, where we're chatting with dating coach Barry Selby. Modern dating sucks, but it doesn't have to. Here on the Dating a Blink podcast, you'll listen in on 10-minute voice-only speed dates between strangers. The experience is designed to move people beyond mindless swiping and marathon messaging. Our position on online dating? It's time to stop collecting pen pals and start, oh, I don't know, going on actual dates. Online dating? That actually involves dating? Is that even a thing anymore? But for real, dating should be fun. We hope listening in inspires y'all to try new ways of meeting people. Tune in every other week to hear a new couple go on a date. In between, we'll talk to relationship experts about how the date went and what we can learn from it. Will our handpicked podcast matches find love on these blink dates? Or will they say goodbye to each other after 10 minutes and never look back? Tune in to find out. Before we jump into today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Barry Selby is a passionate champion for the divine feminine, helping strong, successful women create balance in love, life, and business. He's on a mission to awaken women to own and express their feminine majesty in love and in the world. He helps his clients heal their hearts, sourcing their own inner support and love so they fully embrace their magnificence and help them attract relationships that equal who they really are. As a relationship attraction expert, Barry is affectionately known as the love doctor to his friends and his clients. With more than 35 years of training and experience in the personal development arena, including a master's degree in spiritual psychology and over 22 years as a spiritual counselor, he has helped thousands learn to love themselves and live in wholeness. His number one best-selling book, 50 Ways to Love Your Lover, helps singles and couples embody powerful principles for passionate and richly rewarding relationships. He's an in-demand inspirational speaker standing for love, healthy romance, and deeply passionate relationships. He brings deep compassion, gentle masculine presence, and wise guidance to assist his clients in their journey to true love. Thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast, Date in a Blink, where we'll talk a little bit more about your expertise in the dating and love space. And we will uh, also talk about Shay and Albert's date. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, yeah, we'll have some fun with this today. Yes, wonderful. On your channel, you talk in depth about codependency and a handful of symptoms that go along with it. We want to touch on a number of these, but before we dive into all of that, could you explain to our listeners a bit about what codependency can look like in a relationship? Um, certainly. I mean, I'll, I'll explain from my perspective because there are different um, camps, I'll say, that have perspective on, on codependency being actually healthy, and I disagree with that. So let me be clear, this is my perspective only, not the way the world works. However, a lot of times we are caught up in the romantic um, dream, <laughs> sometimes a nightmare, that when we find a special somebody, they'll take care of all our wounds and we feel better and they'll make us feel much better and we'll be all happy and everything will be great. Interwoven into that, unfortunately, is this sense that somebody else is accountable and responsible for us feeling okay. The quote I use from Jerry Maguire, which is, you complete me, is my favorite to go to because it's so easy to explain the syndrome, so to speak, of like, I'm not complete until you show up, which is what codependency is really about. And that is a trap because none of us are incomplete. And what really a relationship for me is, is when two individuals are not facing each other nose to nose, you can't see anything where you're going, but side by side going in the same direction. And codependency is that first one where you're basically almost dependent, hence codependency, on how the other person treats you that gauges how you feel. And oftentimes what happens in codependent, any relationship, whether it, I mean, it's not always just romantic, but in any relationship, we'll tend to blame the other person for our upset. Or we will make the other person um, feel bad because they didn't make us feel good. This, this interwoven network of emotional blackmail 
and frustration is all because of codependency. You know, when, when, when something happens, when your partner says something that triggers you, but however, you don't react to it, not because you're forcing yourself to, but because you just go, oh, that's them, not me. That's a clue that you're stepping out of codependency. Because oftentimes what we do is we carry grudges against somebody else because something they didn't do or did do or said or didn't say that made us feel bad. The problem with that perception is that it isn't the other person that made us feel bad. We felt bad because of something that happened. And that simple switch frees us from being dependent upon somebody else's treatment of us. You know, the, um, the lot of times I describe it is when you move out of reaction into response to what happens, you start to free yourself from the codependent trap. Does that help or is there more to need to explain? I think that helps. <laughs> maybe I'm just, maybe it's just me. Um, I do love that quote uh, or that anecdote, um, the you complete me uh, line mm-hmm. from Jerry Maguire. Uh, it's, you know, used so often despite, and, and people don't really think about what it means. Um, so I really appreciate that perspective. Well, yeah, I mean, pretty much every, God, I mean, every love story movie and most love, so- love story songs has a thread of codependency in the lyrics because there's something about being in a relationship that somehow you need to sort of settle down with somebody and fall into the relationship versus stay true to yourself and have somebody meet you where you are and they'd stay true to themselves at the same time. Ultimately for me, and it's my own choice because I've been single for quite a long time, that being in a relationship isn't about me giving up anything. It's about adding to what I'm doing and that is a much healthier approach which is not codependent. And a follow-up question, how would you mm-hmm. recommend someone recognize codependency? Because it, it, you make it sound so simple and clear, but I imagine for people <laughs> who are actually in that, in that cycle, it can be really hard yeah. to recognize. So what are some tips you might have around that? Well, if you're single at the moment and longing for someone to come along like a knight in shining armor to show up and <laughs> save you, that's a clue that may be just a smidge of codependency in there. <laughs> um, but also... If there's things you're waiting in, to do in your life that you wait for someone to show up, and I don't mean things like, you know, family and kids, that's a different story, but if it's like when that partner shows up, then I'll go and do this thing in the world. It's like, why wait? Right. Because if you do it now or you're in the process of doing it now, you might discover you'll meet them when you're on the path already. And so there's something about living a full life, living a whole expression whilst we're single that is, one, it's needed, two, it's more attractive because you're not just sitting waiting and actually participating in the world and being of value. But thirdly, you'll be demonstrating to your partner what you're looking for by the way you're acting in your life. I love that so much. I know there are so many people who are like, oh, well, I can't travel. I don't have anyone to travel with. Uh, that's probably the right. biggest one I hear. And it's you can travel. You can travel alone. You can travel with a friend. You can um, do all sorts of things. You don't need to wait for, like you said, the knight in training armor or I don't know what the equivalent would be on the other side. <laughs> but <laughs> When my queen shows up or something. Yeah, right, right. But, yeah. But, but also, you know, because... This is way before the pandemic. I, I love taking myself to movies on my own. Mm. And some people look at me and go like, you're weird. You know, you should only go with people. I'm like, why? Because the thing, if I go to a movie on my own, right. if I want to go to the bathroom, I don't have to worry about disturbing my partner. My person <laughs> with. I can do what I want. I can, you know, and the great thing is, to be honest, when I go see a movie on my own, I don't have to explain anything to anybody else. I don't have to ask anybody any questions. I don't get interrupted by my, by my friends. So there's benefits <laughs> going on your own. And yes, I understand international travel. When you're a single woman, maybe a bit more challenging. But if you're doing that, take a girlfriend with you. Go together with some other friends that aren't romantic and do something like that. That's easy enough. Yeah. I think this segues really nicely into our next question because 
sometimes I know in relationships and even just in some friendships, if you see somebody that you're close to doing something without you, it might build up a layer of resentment. And so I think resentment is one of those things that it can come up in so many different ways, not just in this idea of being with someone who is is independent and does enjoy doing things on their own. And in one of your live streams, you break down what resentment is. And at Mm -hmm. one point you describe it as being a way to retain feelings of judgment while also preserving our sense of being a good person. Oh yeah. So I'm curious, so curious <laughs> what what is so satisfying about holding on to judgment towards towards those who have hurt us and why does this sometimes feel more satisfying than forgiveness? This is fun. We are <laughs> as human beings we're wired in such strange ways the way we feel good about things. There, there there's such a and I'm sure I'm, I'm not a psychologist, you know, background in spiritual psychology, but there are people out there who would probably break this down as a clinical description, but I speak from more of just the philosophy viewpoint I've understood. First of all, um, resentment, one of the, one of the um, metaphors or, or ways of describing resentment is taking poison, expecting the other person to die. So first of all, when you say that, you get the feeling of just what that means by resentment. It's like you're, you're upset with somebody else, but that somebody else hasn't got a clue that you're even upset. Meanwhile, you're carrying that upset feeling inside yourself, which is being negative and having toxicity, toxicity with your own system. So physically, for your health, resentment doesn't add to your benefit, your life and enjoyment. So if you can get out of resentment, it's better. So that's one reason why forgiveness is important. The second part, to speak to your um, reflection of what I said in one of my live streams, is that resentment is the other side of the coin to guilt, as in guilt and resentment are both similar vehicles, tools we use in our lives. And what, they, what they're used for is a way of separating who we are from what we think or what we do. And what that means is that we, deep down inside, believe we're good people. But when we do something bad, I'll, I'll speak from the guilt side for a second first. When we do something bad, we have this di- difficulty to correlate the bad thing with a good person. So the only way we can keep that logic intact, so to speak, for our brain is to basically put a thing called guilt in between the two. So when we feel guilty for doing something bad, that's natural, ultimately, because when a bad person does a bad thing, they don't care. But if a good person does a bad thing, they feel guilty. It's kind of natural. And what it is, it's this ability to maintain the inner state of being a good person with the outer experience of doing something bad. Resentment is the same thing, except externally referenced, where we judge somebody else versus judging ourselves. So with resentment, what's happening is that we see somebody out there in the world, maybe a partner or a family member or somebody close to us, and they do something heinous. Maybe they scratch the car. I mean, something something really abhorrent. But the thing is, we know deep down that person is a good person. I mean, it sounds so strange to say this, but even with the way the world is now, I believe innately within each of us, we recognize that people in the world are generally good. They do bad things, but they're generally good. And it's that separation of what they, who they are by what they do that needs the requirement of resentment to honor both pieces, so to speak. It's like allowing both to coexist when good people can't be bad. So the only way we can allow badness to happen with good people is have resentment as the buffer between the two, so to speak. I was listening to a book this morning and it was talking about kind of exactly that with what you're saying in terms of people's motivations and what sorts of things do and don't motivate them. And there was something that you were mentioning. Oh, sorry. The thing that this reminded me is that they were talking about some really famous uh, gangsters and mobsters from the early 1900s. Like they mentioned Al Capone and a couple of other people. The, the book is is a bit older. It's, I think... 50 years old at this point that I was listening Mm -hmm. to this morning. 
And it talked about how when interviewing these people in these correctional facilities who have committed pretty objectively heinous crimes, they all believe that they were doing good in the world and that they were doing something righteous or that they were doing something that created some layer of goodness in the world. And so they themselves, they don't view themselves or their actions as them do having done any wrong because to them, even though, you know, murdering somebody is objectively not a good thing. Uh, right. These, these people, when they're interviewed and they're on death row or about to, uh, you know, serve out a life sentence, it really gets to what you're saying before, which is that, you know, people inherently are good people and they view themselves as doing good things, even if from an outsider's perspective, there might be a layer of being delusional with that, you know, depending on what the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, what you're saying, it just, it really kind of hits me and it, it feels very relevant based on what I was, you know, listening to on my car ride this morning. And I just thought it was Really fascinating how this is coming up twice in one day for me. So, yeah, you thank go. you well, for, for sharing that and getting into more detail. I just wanted to share that little anecdote. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that there are people out there who do horrible things, but think they're doing the best thing. I mean, some of the biggest figures in history, you know, killed millions of people or thousands of people. But the name, the reason they're doing it was to save their people or to honor their country or do something to make their people happier or safer. So the price for them was worth it for what they were going to benefit. And this is the thing is there's this discord inside of it. How do you justify that? And so, yeah, the gangsters definitely had that, um, I won't say altruistic, but certainly had this viewpoint that what they're doing was benefiting other people. It wasn't just for them. Very, yeah. very fresh in my mind is both Tinder Swindler and Inventing Anna. I don't know if either of you have cool. seen either, but both uh, essentially cheated people out of a lot of money. And it's interesting, you know, to think about the perspective of the person who's perpetrating these things and how they could potentially justify it. Well, the thing also you've got to read into that is also people's personality styles, because most of us, I would like to think, have compassion and care for other people. And if somebody doesn't, they may think it's normal to do what they did. And that's the thing, is that it's important when you get to know people to get to know if they really do feel, if they do feel honest, they feel humble, they have vulnerabilities, they have a sense of respect for other people because that's going to give you guidance when you're dating as well because you don't really want to date a Tinder swindler, for example. Right. Yeah, I saw that movie. It's, it's <laughs> quite an education. You'd think that the codification in law against doing something would be enough of a, an indication that something isn't normal, but maybe that's just the lawyer and me <laughs> saying they should have known better, if only. But getting back to resentment generally, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions as to methods that somebody can use to begin moving past feelings of resentment. Yeah, the, the big work, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with forgiveness in my work because coming from a spiritual background, I do a lot of work in the area of forgiveness because it is one of the vehicles that we n don't tend to use very often. A lot of people look at forgiveness and go, oh, that's just something simple or it's religious or it's something else. Like, no, forgiveness is a methodology to release the, the judgments and guilt and blame and all that stuff we carry inside that keeps us locked into those limiting patterns. Um, forgiveness actually is, an, is a health benefit too because we're not carrying that toxicity in our system by releasing it using forgiveness. We actually get healthier. So it's, it's actually a health aid, so to speak, although I don't know if a doctor would assign you, you know, take 50 milligrams of forgiveness every day. <laughs> it's quite work that way. <laughs> but forgiveness is a tool that I recommend. I've, I've used it myself many times, and I, I have a workbook I give my clients, and I do a lot of work with this with my clients. Is forgiveness something that you do when you can move into a place of compassion for yourself? Because forgiveness itself is a, is a phraseology. It is a word-level expression, but it doesn't have any impact unless you have the emotional energy of compassion with it. 
So when I work with my clients and in the workbook I give my clients, I talk about how you, when you get to a place of understanding and oftentimes sadness from what you've been feeling about what you did or didn't do, that separate, separate you from other people, you, you sense that feeling and that move, that energy can shift from, from sadness or hurt feelings into compassion because you start caring for yourself. And that position of self-care and that, that sense of compassion you have for yourself is a vehicle through which forgiveness can really stick. And when you, when you do forgiveness, it isn't forgiving the world. It's forgiving yourself for judging the world, so to speak, or forgiving yourself for what you judged you did. Because the thing is, you can't forgive actions because they're already done. The history, it's over. It's complete. What you're forgiving is all the energy you have tied to that action, which is called judgment. So when we are doing forgiveness work, what happened has happened. You know, I'm not, I'm not a religious person. I'm not going to, you know, Jesus, they talk about in the Bible, though, about, you know, forgiveness seven times, 70 times seven, or whatever that is, and turning the other cheek. Well, the thing is with forgiveness, you don't turn the other cheek. What the forgiveness is you forgive to let go, but you don't forget. So what happens with forgiveness is you become stronger and healthier and whole again because you're not carrying the wounds inside and you're letting go of the toxicity. But the other part is you also are very aware of what happened as a fact of life, not as a judgmental experience. And so you look back and you go, I remember that now. I won't go there again. But again, it comes from a place of response versus reactivity because you're no longer caught up in the judgments, the blame, the resentment, all that stuff. You're just going, I see what happened. I'm not doing that again. So forgiveness, forgiveness is this um, simple but elegant and very powerful tool to use to release yourself from judgment, from blame, from forgiveness, sorry, from resentment or from guilt or any of those things. I think that's a really beautiful way to explain forgiveness and the power that that can have. And I feel like that can be so much more impactful beyond just feelings of resentment too, that this sense of self-compassion of and entering a space of forgiving yourself and, and recognizing your limitations of what you can and can't control, what's within your power and what's not. There's also a sense of, I think, freedom in that, freeing yourself from harboring these really toxic emotions and really carrying them with you. So, uh, man, I feel like we could talk about that for a very long time. <laughs> it, it, it is a multi-tool in a sense. You're very, yeah. very true, yeah. Because the thing is, because basically, pretty simply, Forgiveness is, is what releases judgments. And judgments may not be in resentment and guilt only. They may also be about the way you drive to work or the way you got your boss treat you or anything else. So, yes, forgiveness is a very powerful multi-tool working with judgment in all sorts of areas of life. So, absolutely, it's more powerful. And, yes, we could talk about it for hours. Yeah, it's, uh, multifaceted. Uh, it's, it's like the Swiss Army knife of emotional tools. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Shifting gears a little bit here, in one of your mm -hmm. videos, you ask a very sobering question, which is, do you want a partner or a project? Ooh, and yes. I think this is a question that can be so difficult to be honest with ourselves about, and one that can become especially difficult when it comes to someone who you deeply care for. What's the difference between viewing a relationship as a project and simply being a supportive and loving partner? Ooh, so many pieces to this puzzle. Um, yes. <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier about the codependent piece about you want to be doing what you want to do in the world and, be, and find someone to join you on the path. Mm -hmm. Those people are not projects. When somebody, and I uh, I should probably um, self-disclosure here, I, I did do this in the past relationship where I was the project, so I know what it feels like being the other side of it. And ultimately, I felt like a burden, and also my partner did not respect me. And being the guy who was a project, wasn't a pretty picture. Ultimately, the relationship, it went down the tubes pretty badly. So 
having been on the on the the project side of things, it's not fun. The thing about projects, and this is the ch- the challenge, is when you care for somebody, but then they aren't stepping up, being responsible for themselves. Then it's not your job to carry them. However, it may be your job to refer them to somebody who can work with them, whether it be a therapist, coach, guide, something like that. In relationships, you may fall in love, and this is the challenge also. The project idea, the same thing applies, like you fall in love with their potential. And that is dangerous because you're presuming that what you see in them is what they see in themselves. And also what you see in them is something they're going to take action on. Or something they want to be. Yeah, it's like, are they going to, do they see their, their own potential and are they going to take action on it? If they're working on something and they're already on the, on the, um, the path to success, so to speak, that's a project in motion. That's something we're working on. That's really cool. That can be f- wonderful as long as it looks like they're really on it and they're not just um, presenting a good image because that's another thing that happens. People do present a good show. So definitely understanding that this person that you're with, because I would also say we're all probably all works in progress. None of us are perfect, so we're all works in progress to a degree. But it's like, are we work in progress or are we roadworks not going anywhere? And so knowing the difference is key. So when you meet somebody that is doing their work and working on themselves and isn't there yet, you know, they're, they're, they're things they're working on, their goals, maybe they set up a new business or they're changing their home life and you see them in the middle of that transformation. That's a, that's in motion. That's a, that's good. You may want to get involved at that point. You may want to wait till they've got past that point. It's up to you. But when you're, when they're making, um, <laughs> when they're planning this big project and it looks like they're not taking any action toward it, that's not going to be very effective. And truth, the other part is with this project is sometimes you meet somebody who hasn't done their own work, has not healed their past emotional wounds from the past relationship breakup, whatever that was. It's not your job to be their therapist. And that's one of my big ones I talk about a lot. And, and the challenge for me being, being <laughs> having as much experience in life as, and, and relationships as I've had, I will not date anybody who's not done their own work because I don't want to carry that burden. That's too much of a project to take on. And the truth is, if I do that, they're not my partner anymore. They're my, they're my client. So it's vital that we all do our own work, that we choose to, you know, not just sit there waiting for someone to come along and save us. Again, the night shining arm is going to come and save us. It's not the position to be in. You want to be already riding your own horse in the way, sort of being, being whole, doing the work you need to do, whether it is seeing, you know, a th- therapist, read a book, go to a counselor, a group program, whatever it is, to undo whatever stuff you're still carrying, you know, baggage, whatever you want to call that. So you're free and already living the life you want to live. We have this challenge again also about, you know, when the person shows up, then I live my life. It's like, why not live your life now? Then they show up. I think we did it backwards for a long time. I really love that you mentioned that when you're kind of doing the work for a partner, they become your client. I feel like I always hear it in the the phrasing of, a parent-child relationship, and I really like this this perspective. The way you've shared it of, of not parent-client, but rather you know, or not parent-child, but rather uh, as a, a client or a clinician. And I think that that's a that could be a really powerful way to also help people make sense of the difference in the dynamics of those relationships. Because you, if you don't have healthy modeling, I think from your home life perspective, you might think that being that person for somebody makes sense. But when you yes. view it from a clinician to a client perspective, it's it's very clear where those boundaries are because you're like, what? I'm not trained to do those things. You can't be my client because I am not a clinician. 
And right. that I think is easier for people to, to make that distinction. So I, I like that. Thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome. So you talked a little bit about how we each have to kind of work on ourselves. And in some scenarios in a relationship, um, you know, somebody might be working on themselves and be making or kind of attaining a lot of personal growth while the other person might feel like they're falling behind. Is there a productive way to approach that sort of scenario in a relationship and a way to preserve the relationship as a whole while also preserving your per personal progress? Yeah, that word preserve gets me a little bit um, <laughs> amused. The thing is, when, when we are going in the personal development growth field, as you whatever you call it, we are changing. So we're not staying the same. And so things will be different. Um, in, my, in my book, I have a chapter about what, what are called the rubber band, rubber band in relationships. Is then, And this is one of those keys, is that when you're in a relationship with somebody and one of the partners maybe the other person starts to follow a new, follow a new course. Maybe it's um, you're, you're the person, for example, who's developing, growing. You, you take, you're starting to take a yoga class or you're doing some Buddhist teachings or you're doing a personal growth seminar or you're reading some books or you're taking a course, whatever it is, and your perspective on life is shifting. You're growing, you're developing who you are. And what you're noticing is that the difference between you and your partner is, is changing, that there's a gap growing between the two of you. I talk about this as being like a rubber band, and there's tension on the rubber band because you're you're sort of in some ways growing further apart because you're developing the other person isn't. At one at some point, there's going to be a lot of tension. There's going to be basically one of three things can happen. First of all, the other person will see what you're doing and will see how maybe how happy you are, how successful, how fulfilled you feel, and saying, "Okay, I want some of that. How do I get there?" And they they step up and they follow maybe the same teaching, maybe a different teaching, but they end up being on the same level as you. That's like, all well and good, that's great, that's wonderful. That's the ideal. The other two options aren't so good, though. One of which is that you've started developing, growing, you've, you've elevated, so to speak, beyond your partner, not in necessary superiority, but certainly in awareness or growth, whatever that is, or healing. Look back at your partner and recognize that the love that you have for them is more important than your own journey, and you actually start shutting down again and go back to where, they, where you were. It's rare, but it does happen once in a while. The third option, which often happens too, and I've seen it happen many times, is that your development path becomes more important to you than the relationship because the relationship isn't changing. The person is becoming static. They haven't moved, and so the relationship ends because you need to be free and step on, and you actually end up meeting somebody who's already done their work or is doing the same path or is doing a parallel path that you go, that's the sort of person I want to be with. And then the person who's left behind, they may then wake up. I've seen that happen as well, but it's too late oftentimes. So the other person may wake up and go, hang on a second, I need to step out of my own um, comfort zone, or whatever you want to call that, and step into learning and growing, becoming more of who I can be. You may not get the same person back, but you'll be a better person because of it. Shifting gears a little bit to Shay and Albert's date specifically, sure. what were some communication strengths that stood out to you in their conversation? To be honest, I think that he seemed much more um, forward thinking and, and sharing and opening about with with the kids and his especially with the um the challenged kids he was like almost a, almost like a cheerleader for them he had such a heart in what he was talking about which i love personally listen to as a, as a person listening to it i don't know if she got it as clearly as that i mean when when he talked about his dog she was on board you know rescues like she so so jumped into <laughs> that but when some of the kids it didn't i didn't feel her so as in, in interested or invested at that moment 
so I'm I was watching the, di- the difference between the two. Yeah, I mean they both they both come from LA. They're both local, so they both have common ground to speak from. Um, but getting their goals to be aligned because he wants he's going to contribute more and wants to be able to participate and make an impact. She wants to travel more. Not this right wrong with either one, but I just noticed there were the differences that may or may not fit together. We just have a couple more questions for you, and then we'll let you go. Okay, thank you. Yeah. If Shay and Albert matched and decided they wanted to meet in person, what advice would you give them for moving forward? I would say they've already built some rapport through the call, which is wonderful. And one of the things I love people talking before they meet to get to know somebody a bit better. So build on that. So, you know, you've already built some connections, some understanding of each other, which is wonderful to play with. Secondly, continue being authentic. It sounded very, in the audio conversation, <clears throat> it sounded extremely real and present and vulnerable. And I said, do more of the same. The challenge sometimes when we go and meet in person, we put on a shield or a mask, so to speak. And I would say, just be honest and open and vulnerable and enjoy where it goes. I love that. And I also really enjoy the visual of removing the mask or, or uh, the mask feels off when you're having an audio conversation. That's right. one of the beauties about a voice connection is that it does allow you to engage in this more vulnerable side that you might not when you feel like you're putting on a show. So I, just, I think that's a... That's a great reminder for people that when you do take it to that next step, you, you keep that layer of authenticity and that vulnerability. It's scary, but it, it's incredible the types of relationships that you can build by by engaging in that side of it. It's ourselves. so worth it. Absolutely. Yes. Hmm. We're going to jump to the million dollar question. <laughs> so the million dollar question, date in a blank, what did you think? Did they match? Why or why not? Um, and I'll give my guess and then Laura can reveal what happened. Um, I think there's enough spark that they could have had something going on. But again, I don't know exactly what they were saying yes to ultimately. Right. So I would say it's possible they definitely could have had further progress. Whether or not they did or not, I don't know. I think that they matched as well. Laura? They did match. Yay. They were Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at, at a minimum, they wanted to continue the conversation after they had their first 10 minutes together. So we're still waiting to hear back on whether they continue the conversation further beyond that, and we'll, we'll keep you updated. As we wrap up, a question we love to ask all of our experts, do you have any quick words of wisdom or advice for our audience? Oh, quick words. Yeah. Um, well, I'll put it this way. Since this is all about dating and relationship and love, put love first. Be loving with yourself and honoring yourself. So when you go on dates, be loving to the world, the person you're going to meet, but also be extremely loving to yourself. So if you don't feel aligned, don't feel authentic, trust that. Trust your intuition, your own instincts, and have fun and experience. And the biggest piece of all is when you're on these first few dates, go in having high involvement and low attachment so you don't get rejected. I adore that, this perspective of being able to remind people to love themselves first. And that sense of warmth, I think, just really emulates in how people choose to show up in the world. Great words of wisdom. Thank you. Yeah. And as our final, final question, how can our <laughs> audience get connected with you? Um, easiest way is that um, all my social media and my, and my website is my name, Barry Selby. So YouTube, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever, except for Instagram, which is the real Barry Selby. But my website is barryselby.com. <laughs> and you can get all information about how to meet how to reach me, get support, get guidance on my website. And 
I also have a YouTube channel with about 1,400 videos on it. that will keep you busy for about six months. <laughs> Love it. So youtube.com slash Barry Selby. So again, all my name is everywhere. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your words of wisdom and your experience with our audience. And yeah, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, my pleasure. I hope to see you again. That's all we've got for you today. Shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at The Blink Date or at Date in a Blink to let us know what you think. If you want to try voice for speed dating from the comfort of your home, download the Blink Date app today. You can also sign up to participate in Date in a Blink by visiting our website at www.theblinkdate.com. In the meantime, thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening and look forward to talking with you again next time.